Chapter 11 of Belinda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Belinda by Maria Edgeworth. Chapter 11 Difficulties. Before he left town, Dr. X called in Berkeley Square to see Lady Delacour. He found that she was out of all immediate danger. Miss Portman was sorry that he was obliged to quit her at this time, but she felt the necessity of his going. He was sent to attend Mr. Horton, an intimate friend of his, a gentleman of great talents and of the most active benevolence, who had just been seized with a violent fever in consequence of his exertions in saving the poor inhabitants of a village in his neighborhood from the effects of a dreadful fire which broke out in the middle of the night. Lady Delacour, who heard Dr. X giving this account to Belinda, drew back her curtain and said, "'Go this instant, doctor. I am out of all immediate danger, you say, but if I were not, I must die in the course of a few months, you know. And what is my life compared with the chance of saving your excellent friend? He is of some use in the world. I am of none.' "'Go this instant, doctor.' "'What a pity,' said Dr. X, as he left the room, "'that a woman who is capable of so much magnanimity "'should have wasted her life on petty objects. "'Her life is not yet at an end. "'Oh, sir, if you could save her,' cried Belinda. "'Dr. X shook his head, but returning to Belinda, "'after going halfway down the stairs, he added, "'When you read this paper, you will know all that I can tell you upon the subject.' Belinda, the moment the doctor was gone, shut herself up in her own room to read the paper which he had given her. Dr. X first stated that he was by no means certain that Lady Delacour really had the complaint which she so much feared, but it was impossible for him to decide without farther examination, to which her ladyship could not be prevailed upon to submit. Then he mentioned all that he thought would be most efficacious in mitigating the pain that Lady Delacour might feel and all that could be done with the greatest probability of prolonging her life. And he concluded with the following words. These are all temporizing expedients. According to the usual progress of the disease, Lady Delacour may live a year, or perhaps two. It is possible that her life might be saved by a skilful surgeon. By a few words that dropped from her ladyship last night, I apprehend that she has some thoughts of submitting to an operation— which will be attended with much pain and danger, even if she employ the most experienced surgeon in London. But if she put herself, from a vain hope of secrecy, into ignorant hands, she will inevitably destroy herself. After reading this paper, Belinda had some faint hopes that Lady Delacour's life might be saved, but she determined to wait till Dr. X should return to town before she mentioned his opinion to his patient and she earnestly hoped that no idea of putting herself into ignorant hands would recur to her ladyship. Lord Delacour, in the morning, when he was sober, retained but a confused idea of the events of the preceding night, but he made an awkwardly good-natured apology to Miss Portman for his intrusion, and for the disturbance he had occasioned, which, he said, must be laid to blame of Lord Studley's admirable burgundy. He expressed much concern for Lady Delacour's terrible accident, but he could not help observing that if his advice had been taken, 
the thing could not have happened, that it was the consequence of her ladyship's self-willedness about the young horses. How she got the horses without paying for them, or how she got money to pay for them, I know not, said his lordship, for I said I would have nothing to do with the business, and I have kept to my resolution. His lordship finished his morning visit to Miss Portman by observing that, the house would now be very dull for her, that the office of a nurse was ill-suited to so young and beautiful a lady, but that her undertaking it with so much cheerfulness was a proof of a degree of good nature that was not always to be met with in the young and handsome. The manner in which Lord Delacour spoke convinced Belinda that he was, in reality, attached to his wife, however the fear of being or of appearing to be governed by her ladyship might have estranged him from her and from home. She now saw in him much more good sense and symptoms of a more amiable character than his lady had described, or than she ever would allow that he possessed. The reflections, however, which Miss Portman made upon the miserable life this ill-matched couple led together, did not incline her in favor of marriage in general great talents on one side, and good nature on the other, had, in this instance, tended only to make each party unhappy. Matches of interest, convenience, and vanity, she was convinced, diminished instead of increasing happiness. Of domestic felicity, she had never, except during her childhood, seen examples. She had, indeed, heard from Dr. X descriptions of the happy family of Lady Anne Percival, but she feared to indulge the romantic hope of ever being loved by a man of superior genius and virtue, with a temper and manners suited to her taste. The only person she had seen who at all answered this description was Mr. Hervey, and it was firmly fixed in her mind that he was not a marrying man, and consequently not a man of whom any prudent woman would suffer herself to think with partiality. She could not doubt that he liked her society and conversation. His manner had sometimes expressed more than cold esteem. Lady Delacour had assured her that it expressed love, but Lady Delacour was an imprudent woman in her own conduct, and not scrupulous as to that of others. Belinda was not guided by her opinions of propriety, and now that her ladyship was confined to her bed, and not in a condition to give her either advice or protection, she felt that it was peculiarly incumbent on her to guard not only her conduct from reproach, but her heart from the hopeless misery of an ill-placed attachment. She examined herself with firm impartiality. She recollected the excessive pain that she had endured when she first heard Clarence Hervey say that Belinda Portman was a compound of art and affectation. But this, she thought, was only the pain of offended pride, of proper pride. She recollected the extreme anxiety she had felt, even within the last four-and-twenty hours, concerning the opinion which he might form of the transaction about the key of the boudoir. But this anxiety she justified to herself. It was due, she thought, to her reputation. It would have been inconsistent with female delicacy to have been indifferent about the suspicions that necessarily arose from the circumstances in which she was placed. Before Belinda had completed her self-examination, Clarence Hervey called to inquire after Lady Delacour. Whilst he spoke of her ladyship, 
and of his concern for the dreadful accident of which he believed himself to be in a great measure the cause. His manner and language were animated and unaffected. But the moment that this subject was exhausted, he became embarrassed. Though he distinctly expressed perfect confidence and esteem for her, he seemed to wish, and yet to be unable, to support the character of a friend, contradistinguished to an admirer. He seemed conscious that he could not, with propriety, advert to the suspicions and jealousy which he had felt the preceding night. For a man who has never declared love would be absurd and impertinent were he to betray jealousy. Clarence was destitute neither of address nor presence of mind, but an accident happened when he was just taking leave of Miss Portman, which threw him into utter confusion. It surprised if it did not confound Belinda. She had forgotten to ask Dr. X for his direction, and as she thought it might be necessary to write to him concerning Lady Delacour's health, she begged of Mr. Hervey to give it to her. He took a letter out of his pocket, and wrote the direction with a pencil, but as he opened the paper to tear off the outside on which he had been writing, a lock of hair dropped out of the letter. He hastily stooped for it, and as he took it up from the ground the lock unfolded. Belinda, though she cast but one involuntary, hasty glance at it, was struck by the beauty of its color and its uncommon length. The confusion of Clarence Hervey convinced her that he was extremely interested about the person to whom the hair belonged, and the species of alarm which she had felt at this discovery opened her eyes effectually to the state of her own heart. She was sensible that the sight of a lock of hair, however long or however beautiful, in the hands of any man but Clarence Hervey, could not possibly have excited any emotion in her mind. Fortunately, thought she, I have discovered that he is attached to another whilst it is yet in my power to command my affections. And he shall see that I am not so weak as to form any false expectations from what I must now consider as mere commonplace flattery. Belinda was glad that Lady Delacour was not present at the discovery of the lock of hair, as she was aware that she would have rallied her unmercifully upon the occasion and she rejoiced that she had not been prevailed upon to give Madame la Comtesse du Pomenard a lock of her belle chevelure. She could not help thinking from the recollection of several minute circumstances that Clarence Hervey had endeavoured to gain an interest in her affections, and she felt that there would be a great impropriety in receiving his ambiguous visits during Lady Delacour's confinement to her room. She therefore gave orders that Mr. Hervey should not in future be admitted, till her ladyship should again see company. This precaution proved totally superfluous, for Mr. Hervey never called again during the whole course of Lady Delacour's confinement, though his servant regularly came every morning with inquiries about her ladyship's health. She kept to her room for about ten days, a confinement to which she submitted with extreme impatience. Bodily pain she bore with fortitude, but constraint and ennui she could not endure. One morning as she was sitting up in bed, looking over a large collection of notes and cards of inquiry after her health, she exclaimed, "'These people will soon be tired of bidding their footmen put it into their heads to inquire whether I'm alive or dead.' 
I must appear amongst them again, if it be only for a few minutes, or they will forget me. When I am fatigued I will retire, and you, my dear Belinda, shall represent me. So tell them to open my doors and unmuffle the knocker. Let me hear the sound of music and dancing, and let the house be filled again, for heaven's sake. Dr. Zimmermann should never have been my physician, for he would have prescribed solitude. Now solitude and silence are worse for me than poppy and mandragora. It is impossible to tell how much silence tires the ears of those who have not been used to it. For mercy's sake, Marriott, continued her ladyship, turning to Marriott, who just then came softly into the room. For mercy's sake, don't walk to all eternity on tiptoes. To see people gliding about like ghosts makes me absolutely fancy myself amongst the shades below. I would rather be stunned by the loudest peal that ever-thundering footman gave at my door than hear Marriott lock that boudoir as if my life depended on my not hearing the key turned. Dear me! I never knew any lady that was ill, except my lady, complain of one's not making a noise to disturb her, said Marriott. Then to please you, Marriott, I will complain of the only noise that does or ever did disturb me, the screaming of your odious macaw. Now Marriott had a prodigious affection for this macaw, and she defended it with as much eagerness as if it had been her child. Odious? Oh, dear, my lady, to call my poor macaw odious. I didn't expect it would ever have come to this. I'm sure I don't deserve it. I'm sure I don't deserve that my lady should have taken such a dislike to me. And here Marriott actually burst into tears. But, my dear Marriott, said Lady Delacour, I only object to your macaw. May not I dislike your macaw without disliking you? I have heard of love me, love my dog, but I never heard of love me, love my bird. Did you, Miss Portman? Marriott turned sharply round upon Miss Portman, and darted a fiery look at her through the midst of her tears. "'Then tis plain,' said she, "'who I'm to thank for this.' And as she left the room, her lady could not complain of her shutting the door after her too gently. "'Give her three minutes' grace, and she will come to her senses,' said Lady Delacour, "'for she is not bankrupt in sense.' "'Oh, three minutes won't do. I must allow her three days' grace, I perceive,' said Lady Delacour, when Marriott half an hour afterward reappeared, with a face which might have sat for the picture of ill-humour. Her ill-humour, however, did not prevent her from attending her lady as usual. She performed all her customary offices with the most officious zeal, but in profound silence, except every now and then she would utter a sigh which seemed to say, See how much I'm attached to my lady, and yet my lady hates my macaw. Her lady, who perfectly understood the language of sighs, and felt the force of Marriott's, forbore to touch again on the tender subject of the macaw, hoping that when her house was once more filled with company she should be relieved by more agreeable noises from continually hearing this pertinacious tormentor. As soon as it was known that Lady Delacour was sufficiently recovered to receive company, her door was crowded with carriages, and as soon as it was understood that balls and concerts were to go on as usual at her house, her troops of friends appeared to congratulate her and to amuse themselves. "'How stupid it is,' said Lady Delacour to Belinda, 
to hear congratulatory speeches from people who would not care if I were in the black hole at Calcutta this minute. But we must take the world as it goes, dirt and precious stones mixed together. Clarence Hervey, however, n'a pas un homme debout. He, I am sure, has been really concerned for me. He thinks that his young horses were the sole cause of the whole evil, and he blames himself so sincerely, and so unjustly, that I really was half tempted to undeceive him. But that would have been doing an injury, for you know great philosophers tell us that there is no pleasure in the world equal to that of being well deceived, especially by the fair sex. Seriously, Belinda, is it my fancy, or is not Clarence wonderfully changed? Is not he grown pale and thin and serious, not to say melancholy? What have you done to him since I have been ill? Nothing. I have never seen him. No? Then the thing is accounted for very naturally. He is in despair because he has been banished from your divine presence. More likely because he has been in anxiety about your ladyship, said Belinda. I will find out the cause, let it be what it may, said Lady Delacour. Luckily my address is equal to my curiosity, and that is saying a great deal. Notwithstanding all her ladyship's address, her curiosity was baffled. She could not discover Clarence Hervey's secret, and she began to believe that the change which she had noticed in his looks and manner was imaginary or accidental. Had she seen more of him at this time, she would not have so easily given up her suspicions. But she saw him only for a few minutes every day, and during that time he talked to her with all his former gaiety. Besides, Lady Delacour had herself a daily part to perform, which occupied almost her whole attention. Notwithstanding the vivacity which she affected, Belinda perceived that she was now more seriously alarmed than she had ever been about her health. It was all that her utmost exertions could accomplish to appear for a short time in the day. Some evenings she came into company only for half an hour, on other days only for a few minutes, just walked through the rooms, paid her compliments to everybody, complained of a nervous headache, left Belinda to do the honours for her, and retired. Miss Portman was now really placed in a difficult and dangerous situation, and she had ample opportunities of learning and practising prudence. All the fashionable, dissipated young men in London frequented Lady Delacour's house, and it was said that they were drawn thither by the attractions of her fair representative. The gentlemen considered a niece of Mrs. Stanhope as their lawful prize. The ladies wondered that the men could think Belinda Portman a beauty but whilst they affected to scorn, they sincerely feared her charms. Thus left entirely to her own discretion, she was exposed at once to the malignant eye of envy and the insidious voice of flattery. She had no friend, no guide, and scarcely a protector. Her aunt Stanhope's letters, indeed, continually supplied her with advice, but with advice which she could not follow consistently with her own feelings and principles. Lady Delacour, even if she had been well, was not a person on whose counsels she could rely. Our heroine was not one of those daring spirits who are ambitious of acting for themselves. She felt the utmost diffidence of her own powers, 
yet at the same time a firm resolution not to be led even by timidity into follies which the example of Lady Delacour had taught her to despise. Belinda's prudence seemed to increase with the necessity for its exertion. It was not the mercenary, wily prudence of a young lady, who has been taught to think it virtue to sacrifice the affections of her heart to the interests of her fortune. It was not the prudence of a cold and selfish, but of a modest and generous woman. She found it most difficult to satisfy herself in her conduct towards Clarence Hervey. He seemed mortified and miserable if she treated him merely as a common acquaintance, yet she felt the danger of admitting him to the familiarity of friendship. Had she been thoroughly convinced that he was attached to some other woman, she hoped that she could freely converse with him and look upon him as a married man. But notwithstanding the lock of beautiful hair, she could not entirely divest herself of the idea that she was beloved, when she observed the extreme eagerness with which Clarence Hervey watched all her motions, and followed her with his eye as if his fate depended upon her. She remarked that he endeavoured as much as possible to prevent this species of attention from being noticed, either by the public or by herself. His manner towards her every day became more distant and respectful, more constrained and embarrassed, but now and then a different look and expression escaped. She had often heard of Mr. Hervey's great address in affairs of gallantry, and she was sometimes inclined to believe that he was trifling with her, merely for the glory of a conquest over her heart. At other times she suspected him of deeper designs upon her, such as would deserve contempt and detestation. But upon the whole she was disposed to believe that he was entangled by some former attachment from which he could not extricate himself with honour, and upon this supposition she thought him worthy of her esteem and of her pity. About this time Sir Philip Baddeley began to pay a sort of lounging attention to Belinda. He knew that Clarence Hervey liked her, and this was the principal cause of his desire to attract her attention. Belinda Portman became his favorite toast, and amongst his companions he gave himself the air of talking of her with rapture. "'Roachfort,' said he one day to his friend, "'damn me if I was to think of Belinda Portman in any way, you take me. Clary would look damned blue, hey? Damned blue, and devilish small.' "'And cursed silly, too, hey?' "'Pon honour, I should like to see him,' said Rochefort. "'Pon honour, he deserves it from us, Sir Phil, "'and I'll stand your friend with the girl, "'and it will do no harm to give her a hint "'of Clary's Windsor flame as a dead secret. "'Pon honour, he deserves it from us.' "'Now it seems that Sir Philip Baddeley and Mr. Rochefort, "'during the time of Clarence Hervey's intimacy with them, observed that he paid frequent visits at Windsor, and they took it into their heads that he kept a mistress there. They were very curious to see her, and, unknown to Clarence, they made several attempts for this purpose. At last one evening, when they were certain that he was not at Windsor, they scaled the high garden wall of the house which he frequented, and actually obtained a sight of a beautiful young girl and an elderly lady whom they took for her gouvernante. This adventure they kept a profound secret from Clarence, because they knew that he would have quarrelled with them immediately, 
and would have called them to account for their intrusion. They now determined to avail themselves of their knowledge and of his ignorance of this circumstance, but they were sensible that it was necessary to go warily to work, lest they should betray themselves. Accordingly they began by dropping distant mysterious hints about Clarence Hervey to Lady Delacour and Miss Portman, such, for instance, as, "'Damn me, we all know Clary is a perfect connoisseur in beauty, hey, Rochefort? One beauty at a time is not enough for him, hey, damn me? And it is not fashion, nor wit, nor elegance, and all that, that he looks for always.' These observations were accompanied with the most significant looks. Belinda heard and saw all this in painful silence, but Lady Delacour often used her address to draw some farther explanation from Sir Philip. His regular answer was, "'No, no, your ladyship must excuse me there. I can't peach, damn me. Hey, Rochefort?' He was in hopes from the reserve with which Miss Portman began to treat Clarence, that he should, without making any distinct charge, succeed in disgusting her with his rival. Mr. Hervey was about this time less assiduous than formerly in his visits at Lady Delacour's. Sir Philip was there every day, and often for Miss Portman's entertainment exerted himself so far as to tell the news of the town. One morning when Clarence Hervey happened to be present, the baronet thought it incumbent upon him to eclipse his rival in conversation, and he began to talk of the last fete champêtre at Frogmore. "'What a cursed unlucky overturn that was of yours, Lady Delacour, with those famous young horses. Why, what with this sprain and this nervous business, you've not been able to stir out since the birthday, and you've missed the breakfast and all that at Frogmore. Why, all the world stayed broiling in town on purpose for it, and you had that card, too. How damned provoking!' I regret extremely that my illness prevented me from being at this charming fate. I regret it more on Miss Portman's account than on my own, said her ladyship. Belinda assured her that she felt no mortification from the disappointment. Oh, damn me, but I would have driven you in my curricle, said Sir Philip. It was the finest sight and best conducted I ever saw, and only wanted Miss Portman to make it complete. We had gypsies and Mrs. Mills, the actress for the Queen of the Gypsies, and she gave us a famous good song, Rochefort, you know. And then there was two children upon an ass, damn me, I don't know how they came there, for they're things one sees every day, and belonged only to two of the soldiers' wives, for we had the whole band of the Staffordshire playing at dinner, and we had some famous glees, and Fawcett gave us his laughing song and then we had the launching of the ship, only it was a boat. Would have been well enough, but damn me, the song of Polly Oliver was worth the whole. Except the Flemish Hercules, Ducrow, you know, dressed in light blue and silver, and— Miss Portman, I wish you had seen this. Three great coach-wheels on his chin, and a ladder and two chairs, and two children on them, and after that he sported a musket and bayonet with the point of the bayonet on his chin— "'Faith, that was really famous. "'But I forgot the Pyrrhic dance, Miss Portman, "'which is damned fine, too, "'danced in boots and spurs by those Hungarian fellows. "'They jump and turn about and clap their knees with their hands "'and put themselves in all sorts of ways. 
and then we had that song of Polly Oliver, as I told you before, and Mrs. Mills gave us—no, no, it was a drummer of the Staffordshire, dressed as a gypsy girl, gave us the cottage on the moor, the most charming thing, and would suit your voice, Miss Portman, damn me, you'd sing it like an angel. But where was I? Oh, then they had tea, and fireplaces built of brick, out in the air, and then the entrance to the ballroom was all a colonnade done with lamps and flowers and that sort of thing, and then there was some bon mot, but that was in the morning, amongst the gypsies about an orange and the stotholder, and then there was a Turkish dance and a Polynesian dance, all very fine, but nothing to come to the Pyrrhic touch, which was a great deal the most knowing, in boots and spurs, damn me, now I can't describe the thing to you. Tis a cursed pity you weren't there, damn me. Lady Delacour assured Sir Philip that she had been more entertained by the description than she could have been by the reality. Clarence, was not it the best description you ever heard? But pray favour us with a touch of the Pyrrhic dance, Sir Philip. Lady Delacour spoke with such polite earnestness and the baronet had so little penetration and so much conceit that he did not suspect her of irony. He eagerly began to exhibit the Pyrrhic dance, but in such a manner that it was impossible for human gravity to withstand the sight. Rochefort laughed first, Lady Delacour followed him, and Clarence Hervey and Belinda could no longer restrain themselves. "'Damn me! Now I believe you've all been quizzing me!' cried the baronet and he fell into a sulky silence, eyeing Clarence Hervey and Miss Portman from time to time with what he meant for a knowing look. His silence and sulkiness lasted till Clarence took his leave. Soon afterward Belinda retired to the music-room. Sir Philip then begged to speak a few words to Lady Delacour, with a face of much importance. And, after a preamble of nonsensical expletives, he said that his regard for her ladyship and Miss Portman made him wish to explain hints which had been dropped from him at times, and which he could not explain to her satisfaction without a promise of inviolable secrecy. "'As Hervey is or was a sort of friend, I can't mention this sort of thing without such a preliminary.' Lady Delacour gave the preliminary promise, and Sir Philip informed her, that people began to notice that Hervey was an admirer of Miss Portman, and that it might be a disadvantage to the young lady, as Mr. Hervey could have no serious intentions, because he had an attachment to his certain knowledge elsewhere. "'A matrimonial attachment,' said Lady Delacour. "'Why, damn me, as to matrimony I can't say. But the girl's so famously beautiful, and Clary has been constant to her so many years.' "'Many years? Then she is not young?' "'Oh, damn me, yes. She is not more than seventeen. And let her be what else she will, she's a famous fine girl. I had a sight of her once at Windsor, by stealth.' And then the baronet described her after his manner. "'Where Clary keeps her I can't make out, but he has taken her away from Windsor. She was then with a gouvernante, and is as proud as the devil, which smells like matrimony for Clary.' "'And do you know this peerless damsel's name?' "'I think the old Jezebel called her Miss St-Pierre. "'Ay, damn me, it was Virginia, too. "'Virginia St-Pierre.' "'Virginia St-Pierre, a pretty romantic name,' said Lady Delacour. 
Miss Portman and I are extremely obliged by your attention to the preservation of our hearts, and I promise you we shall keep your counsel and our own. Sir Philip then, with more than his usual compliment of oaths, pronounced Miss Portman to be the finest girl he had ever seen, and took his leave. When Lady Delacour repeated this story to Belinda, she concluded by saying, "'Now, my dear, you know Sir Philip Baddeley has his own views in telling us all this, in telling you all this, for evidently he admires you and consequently hates Clarence. So I believe only half the man says, and the other half, though it has made you turn so horribly pale, my love, I consider as a thing of no manner of consequence to you.' "'Of no manner of consequence to me, I assure you, your ladyship,' said Belinda. "'I have always considered Mr. Hervey as—oh, as a common acquaintance, no doubt. "'But we'll pass over all these pretty speeches. "'I was going to say that this mistress in the wood can be of no consequence to your happiness, "'because whatever that fool Sir Philip may think, "'Clarence Hervey is not a man to go and marry a girl who has been his mistress for half a dozen years.' Do not look so shocked, my dear. I really cannot help laughing. I congratulate you, however, that the thing is no worse. It is all in rule and in course. When a man marries, he sets up new equipages, and casts off old mistresses. Or, if you like to see the thing as a woman of sentiment rather than as a woman of the world, here is a pretty opportunity for your lovers making a sacrifice. I am sorry I cannot make you smile, my dear. But consider, as nobody knows this naughty thing but ourselves, we are not called upon to bristle up our morality, and the most moral ladies in the world do not expect men to be as moral as themselves. So we may suit the measure of our external indignation to our real feelings. Sir Philip cannot stir in the business, for he knows Clarence would call him out if his secret viz to Virginia were to come to light. I advise you, d'aller votre train with Clarence, without seeming to suspect him in the least. There is nothing like innocence in these cases, my dear. But I know by the Spanish haughtiness of your air at this instant that you would sooner die the death of the sentimental than follow my advice. Belinda, without any haughtiness, but with firm gentleness, replied that she had no designs whatever upon Mr. Hervey and that therefore there could be no necessity for any manoeuvring on her part, that the ambiguity of his conduct towards her had determined her long since to guard her affections, and that she had the satisfaction to feel that they were entirely under her command. "'That is a great satisfaction indeed, my dear,' said Lady Delacour. "'It is a pity that your countenance, which is usually expressive enough, should not at this instant obey your wishes and express perfect felicity. But though you feel no pain from disappointed affection, doubtless the concern that you show arises from the necessity you are under of withdrawing a portion of your esteem from Mr. Hervey. This is the style for you, is it not? After all, my dear, the whole may be a quizification of Sir Philip's, and yet he gave me such a minute description of her person. I am sure the man has not invention or taste enough to produce such a fancy piece. Did he mention, said Belinda in a low voice, the color of her hair? Yes, light brown, but the color of this hair seems to affect you more than all the rest. 
Here, to Belinda's great relief, the conversation was interrupted by the entrance of Marriott. From all she had heard, but especially from the agreement between the colour of the hair which dropped from Hervey's letter with Sir Philip's description of Virginia's, Miss Portman was convinced that Clarence had some secret attachment, and she could not help blaming him in her own mind for having, as she thought, endeavoured to gain her affections, whilst he knew that his heart was engaged to another. Mr. Hervey, however, gave her no farther reason to suspect him of any design to win her love, for about this time his manner towards her changed. He obviously endeavoured to avoid her, his visits were short, and his attention was principally directed to Lady Delacour. When she retired, he took his leave, and Sir Philip Baddeley had the field to himself. The baronet, who thought that he had succeeded in producing a coldness between Belinda and his rival, was surprised to find that he could not gain any advantage for himself. For some time he had not the slightest thoughts of any serious connection with the lady, but at last he was piqued by her indifference, and by the raillery of his friend Rochefort. "'Pon honour,' said Rochefort, "'the girl must be in love with Clary, for she minds you no more than if you were nobody.' "'I could make her sing to another tune if I pleased,' said Sir Philip. "'But damn me, it would cost me too much. "'A wife's too expensive a thing nowadays. "'Why, a man could have twenty curacles and a fine stud and a pack of hounds "'and as many mistresses as he chooses into the bargain "'for what it would cost him to take a wife. "'Oh, damn me, Belinda Portman's a fine girl, "'but not worth so much as that comes to.' and yet confound me if I should not like to see how blue Clary would look if I were to propose for her in good earnest, hey, Rochefort? I should like to pay him for the way he served us about that quiz of a doctor, hey? I said Rochefort, you know he told us there was a tant pis and a tant mieux in everything. He has not come to the tant pis yet. Pon honour, Sir Philip, the thing rests with you.' The baronet vibrated for some time between the fear of being taken in by one of Mrs. Stanhope's nieces, and the hope of triumphing over Clarence Hervey. At last what he called love prevailed over prudence, and he was resolved, cost him what it would, to have Belinda Portman. He had not the least doubt of being accepted if he made a proposal of marriage. Consequently, the moment that he came to this determination, he could not help assuming d'avance the tone of a favoured lover. "'Damn me!' cried Sir Philip one night, at Lady Delacour's concert. "'I think that Mr. Hervey has taken out a patent for talking to Miss Portman. "'But damned if I give up this place now I have got it!' cried the baronet, seating himself beside Belinda. Mr. Hervey did not contest his seat, and Sir Philip kept his post during the remainder of the concert. But though he had the field entirely to himself, he could not think of anything more interesting, more amusing, to whisper in Belinda's ear than, "'Don't you think the candles want snuffing famously?' End of chapter 11 Recording by Mimi Wong